Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Friday the 13th of October. The year is 1307. Did you ever wonder why we consider Friday the 13th what we do? This unlucky day. The reason is because this is the day that Philip IV... King of France rounded up the Knights Templar, arrested hundreds of them, went door to door and and laid out a string of allegations that ultimately brought about the end of the Knights Templar, that they spat upon the cross, that they were engaged in demonic sexual acts with each other, that they were in league indeed, even with the devil. And in 1307, Philip IV kind of signed the death warrant of the Templars. And under incredible torture across France, many submitted to his claims. But yet, almost for almost 800 years, they've continued to live in our collective memory. What is it about, what is it about the Templars that sort of captures our imagination? I mean, the Da Vinci Code, back in maybe, it seems now, simpler times in the world, was the biggest selling book um, of that, I suppose, that decade. Possibly, I would imagine, of the last 20, 30 years. And within the Da Vinci Code, it spun this complicated web that involved the Knights Templar as the keepers and protectors of not just the Holy Grail, but many, many secrets throughout the centuries. In fact, the mythology was even started to be spun while they were still alive in the early 13th century, um, when Arthurian myths and legends were beginning to be written. They were um, kind of woven into the fabric of those stories. So who were the Knights Templar. This episode of Agitators Anonymous, I suppose, is we'll call it heavy metal heroes like I did in a while. I've sort of neglected going down the historical path for the last while, but let's get into this. The Knights Templar, because the mythology, the symbolism, um, it's been the subject of many a heavy metal song. I'm sure I've even written one or two somewhere about um, secret religious monastic orders and the whole imagery, whether it's Gravedigger or Hammerfall or whoever, the whole imagery has been ripe for the picking for 
it would seem mostly power metal bands, but I'm sure there's a few epic metal songs in there about the Templars. Um, but the mythology around the Templars, some real, some steeped um, in half-truths, in probably let's not even call them half-truths, um, but then some of, the, some, of the, some of the mythology that you might think is the most unexpected um, turns out to be true. So let's do it. Agitators Anonymous, this episode, Heavy Metal Heroes, is about the Knights Templar. A little sideways look at their history, who they were, and why they keep affecting our modern popular consciousness. The podcast is sponsored by Metal Blade Records. You can go to IndieMerch.com slash Metal Blade Records or just follow the links underneath in whatever podcast platform you are listening to this and if you're out there in your band or whatever it is you're going to do and you think you need some really cool fireproof backdrops like we use that you often see with Primordial, drop me a DM and I can send you to the right people. All right, let's get into this. The Knights Templar. I suppose in a modern sense, the nearest thing you could compare um, the Templars to, oddly enough, would be um, people who were descendants of those that they were fighting, uh, jihadists. I suppose you could compare them a little bit to Al-Qaeda in some sense, in that it was a sort of religious organization um, that un- that was also willing to fight, that was willing to kill. So where does it all really begin? I suppose we're talking about the 11th century, somewhere around about um, 1085, 1090 perhaps, Pope Urban. Don't forget the the power of the Catholic Church at this time across Europe. I mean, they were literally the greatest power across the land. Pope Urban sort of seemed to drop a bit of a bombshell upon um, the devoted gathering. I can't remember which exactly which papal bull or decree it was, but he just sort of said that what was needed was to reclaim the Holy Land. And this basically um, set the ball rolling on the very first crusade, which um, went left uh, Europe and uh, by the year 1099, Jerusalem had fallen. And basically where the Templars step in and where they get their name is from the Temple Mount itself, the Templars' temples. Um, What basically seemed to have happened is that when Jerusalem fell, pilgrims from around the world, but specifically from Europe, started to make the journey across to Jerusalem and they found it to be uh, the the following 20 years after uh, the fall of Jerusalem they found it to be a very very difficult place the travel diaries seem to record that there was a very very high danger and you could very easily be killed by bandits and kind of how it sort of appears is that the Templars were the uh, the bouncers of the road, the bouncers of the trip. They came to basically form to protect pilgrims on their journey uh, to the promised land, to Jerusalem, to the promised land, to Jerusalem. And that's kind of where they formed. There was a kind of a trend at the time for religious monastic uh, orders such as the Hospitallers, um, I think I've said that right, where we get the word hospital, I guess, from, or uh, the modern phrase from it. There was the Teutonic Knights. There was a bunch of other uh, people. And it seemed to be a kind of a, well, you could call it in modern terms, a sort of a trend. And a man called Hugh Opan at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre formed, they say, with eight or nine or ten knights, the Knights Templar. And their first duties really were to protect pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. And their... You think about a modern 
company and their marketing and branding tools. But the the Templars kind of had it down to a T, even in the even on their formation, their distinctive white robes as knights and their red crosses or black robes with a red cross as well. Their symbol was two knights upon a horse to symbolize poverty. Um, Their branding was so effective that even today, 800 years later, when we see um, an image of a knight with a white front and a red cross, we immediately associate that with the Templars, 800 years later. And so Christians of the time kind of thought, well, this is a pretty good idea. We do need somebody to protect travellers, to protect pilgrims. And so that's more or less where the Knights Templar were born. Often these pilgrims had money, had riches with them, and they seemed easy pickings for bandits along the route. They were essentially what you could call warrior monks. Um, And it was, they formed in 1119. But it wasn't really until uh, 1129 in a town called Troyes, which is in the Loire region of France, uh, a, a town I've actually visited myself. And it wasn't until that meeting um, and Pope Baldwin II, basically, and this kind of set in motion the next 200 years. And it, it kind of one man's small action sort of set a um, hundred different points of light reaching out in different directions. Whatever, whatever you want to say can be the causation of many, many different things. But he basically gave them what was enormous at the time, which was like papal, the papal blessing, which basically made the Templars on, in, on some levels above the law. They were sort of beyond all jurisdictions. I suppose you can compare it to modern day uh, companies that seem to be outside of the jurisdiction or law of nation states. They seem to be beyond um, their ability to rein them in. And that's kind of what happened to the Templars. Um, and it will go on to you know, seal another 200 years of history where they take upon uh, many different forms. But in the beginning, this papal, I suppose, infallibility, something like this, well, maybe not infallibility, but certainly they were um, exempt from tax, They were sort of exempt from the local laws. Local rulers couldn't rein them in. They were really sort of, in a way, answerable to no one. And this sets the scene for what's going to happen. They set down an official rule book um, of 72 clauses, which are pretty interesting to look at um, these days. But they essentially state um, specifically no women. They take a vow of chastity, but it seems to be particularly um, you know, particularly important to avoid the embrace of women, which, of course, led to many um, rumours about the Templars. Many rumours about the Templars that they were something of a, I suppose, a, a gay, a homosexual army. These are the, the rumours that in the end would become part of their undoing as Philip IV played on some of these rumours rather heavily. Um, it's true that they had some sort of admission ceremony which required a kiss on the lips, um, again, Philip would use this to his own advantage, but there was to be they were to have a lot of mon- uh, common monastic rules of monastic order, no laughter. They were wore white cloaks to signify purity. There was to be no singing. Doesn't say much about drinking as far as I can see, but a vow of chastity, a vow of poverty. Yet, of course, the most important clause and the most important rule is that they were allowed to kill, allowed to defend with force, allowed to defend those who believed in Christ against anyone who would attack them. 
and they were allowed to shed blood in the name of Christ, which, of course, is why the cross upon their white, um, you know, fronts was red to signify the blood of Christ. Which, of course, if you remember your Da Vinci Code myth, um, which is sort of the backdrop of a book that turned out to be uh, a fake called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, um, which sort of signified that the Merovingian bloodline, I think this was, was descendant of Mary Magdalene and that they arrived in France. And there's sort of echoes of Avignon, um, the town of Avignon, where one of the popes resided um, sometime in the, I think, 100 or 200 years after the formation of the Templars. But so much of the myth around the Templars becomes, um, it's very hard to distinguish what is what isn't real. But certainly they were much feared monastic killers. I suppose in the sense we could think of them similar to, as I said, jihadists, modern day jihadists on some level. They were, they had their own flag. And as I said, they were beyond the discipline of states. The beyond the discipline of kings, answerable only to the, um, to the Pope. And so they were recruited from the upper mainly the upper, the gentry class. And so therefore they took many donations from the rich. And so soon enough they grow from like a dozen to a thousand to a couple of thousand members. The Hugh de Pan seems to be quite the hustler. And he's, you know, traveling around. He travels to England. There's even um, Templar buildings in Ireland. He travels around collecting donations. And the landed gentry of the time are more than happy to donate to this because it, it it grants them some reverence with the religious orders, um, grants them reverence with the Pope. But I think wise and canny operators can see how important the Templars are going to be. As I said, this blessing by the Pope makes them only answerable to him. They also have no taxes. Um, and this sort of sets things up very interestingly. People begin to donate them land and donate them money. Um, you know, there's stories of them being donated vineyards, they began to have a lot of property, which I suppose is part of that Da Vinci Code myth. If you remember in the book or the crummy movie or whatever, um, how many churches and how much land they own and secret symbols on the floor of churches. Well, those churches do exist. That land does exist. And their influence at the time amongst, um, you know, within the church and those religious orders at the time existed. The Brotherhood's finance really begins to grow at this time. And this is why some people consider them to be one of the first, people say they're the first bank, um, the Knights Templar. And so it makes you wonder about um, how many of today's modern banks owe their, owe their origins to maybe some of the Templars. Because certainly what was happening is that they had um, obviously many, many members of the order situated in France. In fact, they took mainly, they took care of the French treasury for almost 100 years. They were very closely interlinked with um, France at the time. Of course, that's where they came from. But France being, uh, I suppose, realistically, the biggest or most important and most powerful country in Europe at the time, I suppose it's arguable whether they were or they weren't. But I would say pro most likely. Um, they literally kind of took over an awful lot of the finances of uh, France and had sort of influences all across Europe. And what began to happen is that if you were a pilgrim and you wanted to bring, I don't know what would be the method or the the coinage or whatever, you would you wanted to bring, uh, let's call it, say, 100 gold coins worth. You would deposit them in the Templar bank, we'll say the word, or at least you would give them to the Templars maybe in 
um, pick a French town of Troyes or Avignon or whatever, and you would get a note, a notary. So when your pilgrimage began, you would have a note. And when you would arrive in the Holy Land, arrive in Jerusalem, you would hand the note to the Templars on the other side and they would give you 100 gold coins of that from their stock. So you would have it to spend or whatever it is you were going to do. I don't know what you were going to do um, in Jerusalem. So you can see how they became a sort of trading post, a financial trading post to be able to write n- 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 notes, which were notes which were financially guaranteed. And this is an incredibly important thing uh, to consider for the time. Like we're talking um, 12th century and into the 13th century. These are very strange and dangerous times Um early, this sort of middle age, early medieval times where some of the, it's a brutal kind of life people are living. I spoke in another podcast about the Norman invasion of Ireland um, in the 11th century, I think, and how if you were literally living outside the castle walls, you were in a sort of brutal, lawless, no man's land and literally anything could happen and what laws were there to protect you. Now, of course, not everywhere was quite as lawless as rural Ireland, but certainly if you were a pilgrim travelling and you think of the passage you would have to take through to Istanbul, then to Damascus and the main um, areas where the Templars were influential were Syria, Egypt and, of course, um, Israel. So, or the Holy Land. And so the, you're beset by many, many dangers. So you've got the Templars uh, guarant- are the guarantors of your finances from point A to point B, but also guarding you. And through doing this, they became very, very rich and very, very influential. And many people call them the first banking system. And I suppose it sort of makes sense. I would really like to know, I'm really curious to wonder what modern banks have their roots um, in the Templars, because I suppose they would be privy to some of the secrets. Although apparently many of the Templar um, history books written by themselves or books written by themselves were um, lost or burnt or destroyed when they had to eventually, they had to relocate to Cyprus because they were basically eventually kicked out of the Holy Land by Saladin. Um, but I'll get to that. And when Cyprus was retaken by Muslims, they d- destroyed all of these so there are, that's why I think the Templars persist in our concept of myth and mythology, because it's kind of sometimes hard to distinguish between what was and what wasn't real. But they were certainly feared. They were certainly feared as ferocious fighters. If you read or look at Islamic or Muslim texts of the time from um, their um, understanding of the Templars or their writings about the Templars, they were certainly um, feared and, you know, revered in some way. Now, how much influence the actual um, Crusades had across the Muslim world is difficult to say because the story of the Crusades is sort of, I think, a sort of symbolic. It's strange enough, it's a kind of symbolic period in history for, uh, it's like catnip, you could say, for elements of the far right in Europe, I suppose. You know, the Christians going to defeat Muslims. And also on the other side for, you know, the likes of the Al-Qaeda's or the jihadists who would talk about um, Christian influence in the in the Holy Land. And the reality is we're talking about a huge area of land. Of course, the occupation of Jerusalem may, being the main part of it. But these small elements of history, there maybe have been a little bit overblown. I don't know. I'm not a historian, obviously. I'm just a dumb singer in a heavy metal band. But it would seem to me that the mythology of the story is kind of a little bit more widespread than its influence possibly at the time. Uh, I hope I don't speak out of turn in saying such a thing.
So the Templars are sort of like a kind of special forces, SAS special forces. They're not always part of the main body of a, a crusade or an armed forces, but they're certainly um, tactically, they're at the rear, they're at the front. They're the kind of SAS element of um, an army. They're also manning the castles that are being built all along the uh, road to the Holy Land. But yeah, they certainly have a fierce reputation. But aside from being, I suppose, the guarantors or the notaries of uh, money exchange, they also become money lenders themselves, lending um, various monarchs, various rulers to um, the money to go to war, basically. Which is partially why Philip ends up destroying them, because he just wants to get their hands, to get his hands on their cash as well. He's a bit cash strapped. So our boy, our hustler, Hugh de Pan, he dies and we get... Everard de Bar is the new ruler, and he leads what is the Second Crusade, which is in 1147, um, which essentially was, uh, it seems to have been motivated to take revenge in, um, of uh, Muslims capturing Odessa in 1144 in a huge massacre by the Zengi tribe, and they killed the ar- archbishops, children sold to slavery, um, all this kind of stuff, mass rape, all the kind of, I suppose, the cliches or the, 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 the fearful stories that struck right to the heart of Christendom about the Islamic world, all encapsulated in this massacre at Odessa. So, um, Louis, uh, King of uh, France. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If I'm not mistaken, at the time marches with 15,000 men with our boy Everard Dubor. A huge journey, uh, you know, through Constantinople, Damascus, the Long March. And 1148, six months later, they arrive in uh, Turkey and they are rooted by the Seljuks, who are a Seljuk warriors, and the army is decimated and they retreat back to the desert. Um, and Louis does a crazy thing. He basically hands command of the whole crusade to our boy EDB. Let's call him that, Everard Debar. And this is really interesting. You've got um, an entire crusader army. Now it's just sort of handed over to and run by the Templars. But they're also running out of money. And they retreat to Antioch, to Antioch, rather, where our boy EDB goes on the hustle and manages to uh, get a bit of cash, get a bit of cashola to fund the, uh, you know, the return battles. And what that's one thing that's really fascinating is there's so many... Um, and it's fascinating for me as a kind of uh, potted, you know, a poor student of history. So many names, Antioch. This sort of brings to mind such incredible echoes of biblical myth. These are cities that were so integral at one time as trading posts that seem now sadly so uh, divided historically. How do we visit Antioch? How do we visit Troy? How do we visit these incredible cities? Of course, we still can for the for the moment. We can. Um, that's for another podcast, though. Reading through my um, sort of random notes about this, the next 50 years, really from 1153 onwards, seem to be kind of the push and pull of history. The Knights Templar are powerful. There are battles. There are battles won. There are battles lost. There's the siege of Damascus. They retreat to Palmeria. But the order is powerful. The order is growing. They have a famous victory at the siege of Ascalon. But you have to really wonder at this time are they really, of course, they're not living up to their vows of poverty. They've become incredibly rich and incredibly powerful. And I suppose their history really spans about 200 years. Um, and soon enough, a name appears that will begin to, I suppose, spell part of their downfall. This is Saladin, and he conquers Syria. And in 1177, and there's a famous story of him allowing his um, the re his religious leaders to assassinate in any way they see fit, but behead them, behead 400 Templar knights. And the scene is supposed to have been absolute blood and carnage. And Saladin, I suppose, is probably worthy of another podcast if I ever get around to it, another 160 episodes. But he sort of has the idea that, well, if we just destroy them one by one, we can kind of get rid of the Templars. Whereas in reality, it was what Philip did at the end. Um, it was another hundred odd years before that moment was to come. But destroying their religious reputation seemed to be the better way to do it. But that kind of seemed to that could only really happen in France in their home territory. But the name Saladin will prove to be um, pretty essential, pretty important in this story, because in 1187, Saladin retakes Jerusalem um, after almost 100 years of Christian rule with an army apparently the likes of which no one had ever seen of 40,000 and fighting against an army of 20,000 Christians. 
Like it's important to note at this time, it may sound really strange, but the rulers, the kings of Jerusalem were European. It was in Christian, Christian hands and had been for almost 100 years. The Crusaders were surrounded and in 1187, Saladin was victorious. Guy of Reynard, one of the prisoners, was given the opportunity to recant, to renounce Christ. Saladin knew he would say no and no, he said, and he was beheaded and his head dragged through the streets the following day. The Templars are kicked out of Jerusalem. Don't forget, this is where they got their name, the Temple Mount, the Templars. So in a strange way, they've been sort of kicked out of the uh, town that they had actually named themselves after, you know, after the temple. The writing, you could say, was sort of on the wall, on the Wailing Wall, perhaps. I kind of like saying the name, though. Assassin, Assassin, Interstellar Experience. Pretty good German second division speed metal band. Anyway, Assassins were the name of a Shiite sect. They were, I suppose, Syrian terrorists from the 13th century. And they had a sort of a a bit of a beef with the local Christians. And, uh, you know, they wanted to try and sort of deal with some settlement with them. But, of course, the Templars, who were being paid tithes by them, just beheaded all of the assassins and sent them packing um, in order to keep the beef going because the beef was financially, um, you know, worth something to them. I didn't explain that very well. But my point being that local rulers and local powerful um, kings still couldn't bring the Templars to heel because they simply would say, well, we'll send a we'll send a representative to Rome, to the Pope, for an audience with the Pope and let him decide if we are to be um, dealt with or not, excommunicated, or I suppose that would be the word, um, which basically meant, yeah, look, we can kind of do what we want. You just are going to have to sort of accept it. But in 1291, I suppose this is really the end or the beginning of the end, let's say, of the uh, of the Templars. Richard the Lionheart, you probably know his name. Um, certainly that's a Saxon album, is it, is it not? And interest, interesting that no more black metal bands write songs about the Templars. You've got Saxon, Gravedigger, Hammerfall. We could do with a Templars-themed black metal band, couldn't we? Seems like it's a, a, a non-furrow a that has not been ploughed, so to say. Maybe I'll start it. Maybe I'll look into it. But in 1291, they're basically kicked out of the Holy Land, kicked out of the Middle East. They get defeated, um, their biggest defeats, and they kind of uh, relocate to Cyprus. So it really begs the question, what is the purpose of the Templars now if they're not there to protect pilgrims? 1291, so they've had about 100 and 170, 180 years of existence. Um, and all these things... Uh, are in cycles and come to an end and they are relocated to Cyprus. In fact, I must try and I'm sure there are some amazing places to visit in Cyprus connected to the Templars, connected to this whole um, this whole story. But they have a new leader, Jacques de Molay. And it seems like the writing, as I said, is really on the wall. The reason for the Templars to have been created to exist was pr- to protect passage to the Holy Land. Also, I suppose them being kicked out of the Holy Land would change the concept or change the financial implications for what they were doing. I mean, how can they anymore um, be guarantors of a note, um, you know, 100 gold coins handed in to the Templar banks, let's say in Paris. Let's go all 
Dan Brown on it, all Da Vinci Code. Um, and that note which you were going to bring to Jerusalem, you cannot do that anymore because our boy Saladin is in charge and the Templars have been kicked out. So they sort of have lost their purpose, I suppose. They've lost their raison d'etre. Did you like that? Yes, indeed. So they kind of return to France. There's no new identity. There's no new crusades. And this is where King Philip IV, King of France, the Iron King, um, this tall, handsome man, was supposed to have, as I said, his nickname, the Iron King, um, was supposed to have been very apt. And he is uh, engaged in this huge fight with Pope Boniface. Quite a nice name. He sounds like a defender from the 1982 uh, Italian World Cup team. Boniface to Tardelli hits the back of the net. Has a certain ring to it, doesn't it? But anyway, our boy Philip is having, he's having some major beef with Pope Boniface. In fact, he had such a beef with Boniface, you could say he almost drove him to death. But in the year 1306, he wanted to uh, dig up Boniface's bones to put his exhumed corpse on trial. This is how much he didn't like the man. And the Templars were representative of the Pope, representative of the Church. And so, you know, it was only a matter of time before King Philip decided that he was going to put an end to their influence. And basically, as with most things, as they say um, in that movie, whatever it is, follow the money, I think, is a rather wise. Um, I think it's a rather wise thing to consider when we consider almost everything, whether if you've listened to 160 episodes of Agitators Anonymous, it could be the motives of Big Pharma, follow the money. Could be the motives of your local politician, follow the money. It was certainly the motives of King Philip IV of France in the year 1306, who had his sights firmly trained on the Knights Templar. And this is where we get back to the beginning of the podcast. On Friday the 13th of October, 1307, 600 Templars were arrested. And it really spelt the end of the, um, the organization. Under um, extreme methods of torture, almost all recanted, almost all admitted to um, the allegations, which an awful lot of them seem to be centered around uh, homosexuality, about group sex, about worshipping the devil, about spitting upon the cross. In fact, I remember making a flyer for my fanzine somewhere in 1991, The Oath, and the picture on the flyer was that famous image of the Knights Templar stamping on the cross. Am I deny Jesus Christ the deceiver? I deny Jesus Christ the deceiver. What's that from? This was one of the allegations made against the Templars, that this is what they said when they spat upon the cross. And of course, if there's one way to get your, uh, to get your, to get your headlines sewn into the consciousness of the public, to get the the, the grapevine of rumor beginning, it was to infer that the Templars were actually in league with the devil. This held quite a lot of water in the year 1307, and true enough. However, it struck me, this is something odd that I didn't really realize, is that torture was not a method approved everywhere. And the uh, a certain French inquisitors came to England looking for Templars, trying to seize their land and interrogate them, but could only interrogate them through normal means. 
um, and found, oddly enough, the Templars didn't agree with them, were rather obstinate, did not agree with any of the accusations. And the French inquisitors were in a rather, in a bit of a huff, kind of wanted to bring the Templars that were um, in England back to be tortured in France. Oddly enough, they could only really get these confessions through torture. Um, And this is where the sort of mythology around the Templars sort of grows um, and takes on a a whole different angle because they are said to have fled, fled to Scotland um, with the Grail. You know that story about there's a a small grail somewhere hidden in a wall in a tiny Templar church in the, in the middle of Scotland somewhere. These are where the myths began to grow. Where did they take the grail? Was there any hidden treasure? I think you're going to have to go back and watch that awful film, that awful Tom, Tom Hanks movie, The Da Vinci Code, and try and spot all the Templar references. I don't know if I would recommend it. I presume, just like the book, it's nonsense. I do admit that at the time I read the book, um, in like a day or two. Uh, and I think as a teenager, I also read the um, the Holy Blood, Holy Grail book, which sort of fascinated me, but um, was turned out to be a, a rather elaborate hoax. So in the year 1311, um, there is a council held. Where do they hold this damn council? I haven't can't remember off the top of my head, but um, the Vox in Excelsia is the papal bull that revokes the support of the Templars, and that's almost their final nail in the coffin. They're now forbidden. They are excommunicated. 54 are burnt at the stake following the uh, council, but the specific end, uh, specifically uh, torturous, romantic, dark end, is left for Jacques de Molay, who is the final head of the Knights Templar, where in the year 1314, um, on an island on the Seine, I must have a look and see if that, if there's um, some, you know, which island it is, but an island on the Seine, he is brought uh, to burn and is burnt to death, the last leader of the Knights Templar, on his own on an island in the Seine. His last words, God will avenge our death, which is quite interesting because King Philip died very shortly after that. He did, he asked, could he face Notre Dame? And as he slowly burnt to death, um, there would have been, of course, none of the buildings there, but he could face Notre Dame. And the Templars ceased to be, but he is said to have cursed Philip. And both Boniface and Philip die within three months, as far as I can tell. Did all this really help Philip? Well, obviously, he died soon afterwards. But it seems like the riches um, that he thought he was about to get his hands on never really quite, never really quite worked out for him. It's interesting to note at the time that there was a French pope, Clement V of Gascon, and he lived in Avignon. Um, they'd relocated the papacy to France. That's not something I knew before. But why do the myths persist? I suppose because they're steeped in biblical heritage. They're the mysteries of faith. They almost seem um, propaganda. The Templars end up coming across as sort of anti-heroes on some level, I suppose, in a modern context. There's a sort of fascination with what we consider that they must have deep occult secrets. 
Um, and it's sort of it's a it's a kind of a mythological story that we see we can see echoes of, as I said, obviously retold in the whole Da Vinci Code um, nonsense. But it just has captured our imagination. And, you know, when you watch even like Game of Thrones and that kind of thing, you can see obviously that's more about the War of the Roses and about um the Plantagenets and English history. But we are fascinated by this sort of 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th century history because it's not quite the Middle Ages. It's not quite medieval in the sense that we can see echoes of our society um, in the 16th, 17th century. But the 11th, 12th century seems so removed sometimes. Some of the things that you hear of, they do seem otherworldly and they could easily be, um, you know, just mythology. As I said, the, the Arthurian, the stories of the Arthurian legend begin somewhere in the early 13th century. I think the guy is called Etienne, Etienne de Troyes. Am I thinking of Troyes because it's the same name as uh, where the council was? No, I think Etienne de Troyes was the first author and that was who began to write about Arthurian legend. And he interwove that with t stories about um, kind of within to Templar myth, as far as I can see, this is like 1210, 1220, 1230. So their own mythology was being written while they were still around. Of course, their story obsessed all sorts of people. I mean, um, we all know stories about the, the Nazis. There was a small element of the Nazis who were obsessed with the Holy Grail of going to find the Holy Grail. And they went on some madcap um, crazy mission, I think, to Nepal. Um, in search of the Holy Grail. It's been something that's obsessed um, many, many people over the years. And it's really unusual to think of something like this, like a monastic religious order who so um, symbolically captured elements of our imagination. And like I said, the the Dan Brown book, I think of, I probably, I kind of think of it was before the whole Harry Potter nonsense. The Dan Brown book probably would have been the biggest selling book at the time. I just seem to remember everyone reading it at the time and people asking me, oh, you, you read a book or two about the Templars. What's the story with this Merovingian bloodline and Mary coming on a boat and, you know, the grail being in Avignon. You're like, wow, fucking hell. Okay. Everybody's all of a sudden into Arthurian myth and legend and the Templars. However, their name has lived on in a couple of dodgy albums by Gravedigger uh, and Hammerfall. So a pretty decent one, I think, in, with Saxon. But I definitely think that there needs to be some balance redressed. And we need a black metal album about the Templars, or at least a proper big, stonking, epic metal album. Uh, what are you doing about it, Solstice? Or maybe I need to do it. I don't know. Anyway. I just thought it might be more interesting than me whinging on about oh the price of merch at shows or talking about Spotify or giving out about whatever it is that I've been giving out about and get back into this heavy metal hero's little look at history. So that is my top of the brain random um, discussion about the Knights Templar, where they came from, what they did and ultimately their downfall. Remember when Friday the 13th comes around next time. The reason why Friday the 13th is Friday the 13th, because in the year 1307, King Philip arrested 600 heads of the Knights Templar, accused them of sexual degradation and being in league with the devil, shut down the Knights Templar and tortured them all and burnt many of them to death with our boy, the last leader of the Templars, Jacques de Molay, Smoke billowing around him, flames licking at his feet on a little river in the Seine in Paris, facing 
Notre Dame and warning King Philip, cursing him. Let evil swiftly befall those who have wrongly condemned us. God will avenge us. My friends, it's Agitators Anonymous, episode 160-something or other. I'm Alan Averill, just a singer in a heavy metal band. I'm not a historian, so don't take this as miss or disinformation, um, if that's relevant to things from 1317. But we shall see you next time.